This is episode number 12 of the World Teacher Podcast. This episode is about one of my favorite topics, embodied learning. It's a favorite not because I know a lot about it, I should say up front. Instead, it's a favorite topic of mine because at various times in my life, when I've gone deep into periods of self-examination and experimentation through things like mindfulness, qigong, or yoga, or whatever, I've honestly reaped really incredible personal insights, and these insights have given me a great deal of hope. Hope for my own personal change efforts, my own growth. I've actually learned a ton about myself by paying attention to my body. For me, emo my emotional state seems to be an inextricable lockstep with my physical state. If I exercise in the morning, I'm one of the happiest people on earth the rest of the day, ask any student who's ever had me. And when I don't exercise and just walking isn't enough for me, I honestly feel pretty terrible. I've also learned that I'm someone with pretty high stress reactivity, and once provoked, it really does tend to endure, which frankly sucks. Calming myself down is crucial, and I'm really not great at it. The point I want to make, however, isn't about myself. It's about the educational benefits of engaging the body. Whether it be through achieving and paying close attention while in calm states, or through things like spontaneous play, dance, fitness, or sports, all are good, but the benefits differ, and how we should use a given technique also differs by both situation and, really importantly, by person. It's my strong view that most everyone would really benefit from figuring out how to use their own body to help themselves. You see, I think education is largely about figuring yourself out, about cultivating deep and authentic self-understanding, purpose, and meaning in life. But if we don't pay attention to our whole selves, ourselves as embodied beings, and not just our stressed out heads playing narratives back and forth all day in our minds, that is, if we don't develop a true, intimate awareness of how our bodies shape our experience, then in a very real sense, we will never know ourselves. But even if you don't care about that, even if it sounds like hippie BS to you, certain facts do remain. Embodied learning modalities are positively correlated with a wide range of benefits. Even if you don't personally see things like dance, play, movement, or meditation as legitimate acts of learning, well, first, you're wrong. But second, even if you do hold that view, it still stands that various forms of embodied learning are positively associated with major increases in really good things. Things like positive mood, better attention, self-regulation, and improved mental health outcomes. All of these outcomes improve both learning and life. I'm pro-learning and life. I'm guessing you are too. And fortunately, my guest today is much more qualified than I am to speak on these topics. She's an old friend from my grad school days. We were on a research team together for a while, actually. Since then, she's become a professor of education, currently at Western University. Her research and teacher training focuses on the fields of arts-based education, mental health and wellness, restorative practices, and equity and inclusion. Her name is Tracy L. Sheepstra, and she's a great human. With her daughter, Tracy also founded a company called Embodied Learnings, plural which provides support for teachers trying to integrate dance and movement education into elementary school curriculum and instruction. I really want to thank Tracy at the outset of this episode for her openness and her vulnerability. 
in discussing her own path to healing and growth through embodied learning modalities. Honestly, Tracy, you give me a lot of hope. This is me and Tracy L. Sheepstra talking about embodied learning. So, Tracy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. <laughs> it's very, very wonderful to uh, catch up. I haven't, we haven't actually seen each other in person in over 10 years. Uh, we got to know each other quite a long time ago because we we're on the same research team mm -hmm. at OISE under Kathy Bickmore's amazing uh, leadership. Mm -hmm. She's absolutely brilliant, looking at restorative justice practices in schools, yes. which is super important, obviously. And since then, we've gone on our different journeys, and your journey has brought you to an area that I think is really crucially important in education, which looks at the holistic needs of humans as learners. In, in particular, your work focuses on the importance of the body mm. and movement in education. Why does the body matter? Hmm. Well, that's a really good question. And um, there is so much that I can say about it. So let's see where I can start. So the first thing I wanna say about the body and why it matters is that I guess we, I feel like most people move through life where we use our bodies to get places. So it's, it's sort of our form of, you know, travel. It's um, helps us so that we can stay still or, um, you know, we, we think about it in terms of, you know, getting exercise or whatever those things, but we spend a lot of time focusing on our mind, our thinking mm. brain as if that is all of who we are. And yet we forget that actually we're a whole human being which is the mind and the body connected. And even though our body doesn't talk to us in the same way our mind does, which is really just our voice. And sometimes people sort of describe it as that, you know, drunken monkey that's just, you know, chattering at you, telling you all kinds of stories, whether they're true or not, but our body- I, I, I like to call it the narrator. Oh, the narrator. Well, that's good yeah. too. Yeah. But our body is also, you know, just as wise. It's this very wise intelligent system that is also, you know, supporting us in our life and telling us different things and giving us cues, um, you know, in terms of how it is that we feel, how we understand the world around us. I always think of the body as really this, um, this beautiful sort of uh, space where it holds our memories. It's a place where it will hold our traumas if we've had them. It's, um, you know, it can work really well for us if we're taking really good care of it. We have to take care of our body. It, it is a beautiful system. It has its own natural intelligence. It knows what to do, but if we're not treating it well, then it will, you know, lose track of where it is and what it's supposed to be doing for us. It will let us know. And it will let us know. And it has its way of actually talking to us, right? Mm -hmm. And And so... You know, even though we may articulate, oh, I, you know, I'm feeling anxious today, or I'm really excited, before we can even bring those things into words, our body is already letting us know. So I often think is the, you know, when I think about a tree, I think of the body as the roots of who we are. You know, it's what grounds us, it's what kind of puts us right into the earth and gives us our stability. And then from there, we can grow. Um, so that's sort of when I think of the body, I, I, that's a really critical part about it. And it's important for us to pay attention and take care of our body because, you know, it has the ability to be so um, informative. And How did you come to realize the importance of the body personally? So, you know, it's interesting because there was probably always 
a part of me at a very young age that kind of was starting to intuitively get a sense that my body was really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always been one of those hypersensitive people where I actually felt everything. I felt every ache and pain. I felt every emotion. Um, but it wasn't until I was older that I could look back and say, okay, like my body's actually even more amazing than I realized it was, you know, my body had a way in which it even knew how to protect me, you know? Um, so, you know, one thing that I'm very open about is that when I was a very young girl and my sort of clearest memory was around the age of four, where I was sexually abused by somebody that our family knew. And at the time, one of my memories is of knowing it was uncomfortable, but having an out-of-body experience. I remember actually looking down on my body, but not being in my body in the moment of this particular memory that I have, and then not having any recollection of it afterwards. So it took many, many years for me to even remember, but the and so there was something that my, both my mind and body did to protect me because obviously it was incredibly traumatic to have somebody doing something to you that without your permission in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, for a child that was very confusing and didn't make yeah. any sense, but knowing it was wrong, but yet my body would give me these cues of danger. So when I was around that particular person, it was very clear that this is danger and I could feel it in my body and I could, I, my body would clench and shiver and I would cry, but I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I was 10 that I had my first recollection and 12 when the memories really started to come back. And I don't, I was around 12, 13 when I started to actually tell the adults in my life. So I look back at that and I, and I think how um, now I can look back through all the healing that I've done and say how fascinating that my body was actually able to, in one sense, protect me, but, and, and then also really be the guide for me to understand, you know, levels of comfort and discomfort um, right through all sort of those physicalizations that sort of came through. So, wow. So, so you like developed like an embodied awareness, mm-hmm. it, it almost like you, you developed like a reorientation of the mind to the body where the body became the teacher mm-hmm. and you, and you became like the listener to the body to an extent in certain contexts. And when you did listen, it taught important lessons that Absolutely. were protective. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. You also just mentioned healing. Mm-hmm. How, how did you heal? Uh, well, a big part of my healing was definitely therapy. Um, it was it was sharing my story, first telling the adults in my life what had happened, and then going through a therapy process. But again, a really big part of me was actually reclaiming my body. Mm-hmm. So it was finding a way in which I could be in my body in a way where I could determine, you know, sort of what it was that made me comfortable. And And for me, movement was always a big part of that. Um, And again, it took me a long time to realize. So when I was 10, I moved. um, So my parents were divorced and I had been living with one parent and moved to live with the other. Um, Just was a better situation for me at the time. And I had always wanted to dance. I had seen children dancing and there was something that just said, I want to do that. And I always loved music and loved dancing on my own. But I remember the first time I went to dance class 
And it was like something happened that was magical where mm. I stepped into my body and moved in a way that it almost brought me to tears. Like it was so powerful. And it was like, I could breathe again. You know, it was like, I could just take up all this space. I could be big and I could be bold because I was somehow transformed is how I felt. And so every time I went back to dance class and the music would come on or I'd have to, you know, do steps and, and I was good at it. Maybe that was part of it. It just felt good as well in my mm. body, but it was, it was so much more than that because it, it just kept releasing and it was through the experience of moving that, you know, I, I really, over the years, started to heal. And so um, when I was in university, I had a dance movement therapy course, which was unbelievable. And um, we had a dance therapist come in and, and actually, so the entire course, we learned a lot about dance movement therapy and just ways of, you know, techniques and strategies of being in your body where you could really dig deep and really go like, where is this feeling and how do I bring it out? And, and even working with partners with somebody would just be a witness to watch you move without any pretense of how to move. It was very impulsive, just, you know, how does my body feel it wants to move? Uh, those were really, really emotional moments. And, you know, through my practice of yoga, uh, I've cried many times on my yoga mat, <laughs> where it's just like, it feels like, um, it's hard to explain. It's like there's a moment where something just lets go. It's just like a, and it's like you realize whatever that was, it's just one level deeper where whatever the trauma, whatever you were holding, and sometimes it's just the emotions you've been feeling that week, but you, you physically can feel them like just lifting. Yeah. So, so was I, I, I was in Peru a few <laughs> months ago and I was in a yoga studio with like four other people. And just as what you're describing happened, I was doing it like, I'm not a yoga person at all. I'm like the least flexible person on earth. Um, but there is something that's super important about like just going into the body mm. through the breath, mm. leaving the mind alone for a bit, yeah. feeling the body, breathing into the places of pain or whatever, or just uh, being present. And then I, I, yeah, there was this incredible emotional, like, like, uh, like explosion almost like it was, it was huge. Like, and because I'm a guy in how we're conditioned, I was too afraid to cry in front of the group. So I just held it in. And then when I went back to my room afterwards, absolutely a, a torrent of emotion and pain being released. And it was so helpful and healing and liberating it was beautiful. It was a very, very wonderful feeling. And the more I can learn to do that, I think probably the better because we do store trauma yeah. in our bodies. And you've learned a lot more than I have about how to like activate that trauma and release that trauma. Could you please tell me more about like how that actually has worked for you, uh, whether it's through like dance or any other kind of modalities? Oh, I mean, I've done a lot with the body too, like acupuncture, Reiki, um, again, dance, yoga, um, you know, sometimes just moving on my own in my home, like, you know, walking, walking's a big one for me too. I would say anything where I'm actually just in motion can really make the difference between, you know, feeling good or not feeling good or thinking everything is great. And then you start to move and you realize that, you know, suddenly you are releasing something you didn't know was there. Um, so I have really, I have really learned, particularly for me that, 
any time where I'm not feeling 100% that if I move my body, I can really shift how I feel. Because a lot of it, right, we, we can really sort of think about it. So, um, you, know, I, you know, if I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling slightly anxious, you know, I've got a hundred things on my plate and I've only got so much time, that might be a trigger. I'm not an anxious person, but that might be a trigger of that sort of feeling of anxiousness. And where for me, it sits in my body actually right in my chest. So different people feel things in different places. And I find that the first thing that I will do that really helps to ease it off, besides telling myself, you are totally safe. You have got this. Hmm. Everything will get done. But then I actually sit quietly and I close my eyes and I breathe. And I actually send the breath right into the space where I'm feeling that sort of anxiousness. And I just imagine it dispersing and letting go. And then I'll just sit and keep doing really deep meditative breaths. And, um, and then usually by that point, it's gone. If it's not, the next step for me is then getting up and actually physically moving my body. So I have a dog, so I take her for walks all the time. Um, and usually a walk will easily get rid of it. Um, walking in nature is even more helpful because when I'm in nature, then I will be walking through it and I just pay attention to what's around me. You know, mm. I, I just, I love the trees. I love the smell of the leaves. I love the feeling of the ground beneath my feet. And again, pretty quickly, it'll dissipate too. So I also try to connect my body to where I'm at as well. Absolutely fascinating. So I think there's one step that you kind of jumped over though, which is crucial and implicit, which is, okay, so you, you wake up, you have this anxiety, right? right. Uh, there's whatever, the mind is going, the narrator's running and you have this emotional act reactivity as a response to it that is embodied. You feel it and you know that that's happening yes. and you know where it is. You've identified it. Yes. You've, you've, you're practicing self-awareness oh, yeah. in that moment. And then you have this massive like toolkit of personal strategies exactly. that you've developed over time. And you know that work because you figured them out and you practice them in different yeah. situational contexts and been able to like figure out that this might work in this situation. And if it doesn't, then I'll try that. But like you don't, what you're not doing is just listening to the stories and letting the reactivity build and build and build and build in this narrative kind of spiral that so much of us get stuck in, yep. myself very much included. And I think that that is awesome. And if every single person in the world mm -hmm. had these strategies, we'd ha probably have a lot less like screaming at each other and violence and, and, and all sorts of like awfulness. Yeah, We could create a better world. You wanna start with children, is that right? Yes. Why? Oh, why start with, well, I mean. I mean, they're fun. There's lots yeah. of good reasons, but I'm just saying, why, why kids? Well, you know, it's interesting. So um, I have a grandson who is. Uh, what? You have a grandson? <laughs> I have a grandson. You're like my age. I'm not ready. Like, I'm not even ready for a girlfriend. You have a grandson. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, so I have a little bit. Much more successful in life than I am. I got to say. <laughs> so I have a little grandson who is just, um, he's almost 15 months. And I, I want to talk about him because mm. you know, he is so in tune with his body. Really? And, you know, I, we are all born that way. We are all born where we are so, you know, in the world physically, right? So you think about it, you're born and your connection with the world is first and foremost through touch. 
So the moment that a child is born, you would hope, this is not the case for everyone, it depends on how they're born, but they are touched. I mean, even if it's by a doctor, but in the experience of my children or my grandson or lots of children is that the first thing that happens is they are, you know, brought out of the birth canal and they are placed on their mother's body on the chest. So Mm. their first sort of connection is through touch. And then they are held. A lot of babies are breastfed. Um, and there's just a lot of holding and connection. And then as they start to explore their world, it is through, you know, what can I see? What do I feel? Babies, you know, they grow to learn how to roll. Then eventually they start to crawl. They're always got their hands in their mouth. They're right. So the body is very much a natural part of how it is that they are in the world and how they learn. And so when I watch my grandson, I mean, it's just amazing to see the way that he navigates everything and how curious he is and how he's, he wants to touch everything and put things up to his mouth. Like, how does it taste? How does it smell? How does it feel? You know, like, what do I hear? What do I see? He's delighted by all of it. And he shows that through his body because he doesn't have the words yet. So his big thing is, Ooh, and so he'll look at the trees and go, Ooh, he's just so excited. And again, he loves just so he right, he just loves being in it, but it's very embodied for him. So we are kind of start that way, and then we are conditioned away from it. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, how do we keep children in that space of their natural innate knowing? right? How do we keep them in that space of, I know when I'm hungry, and I know when I'm full, I know when I'm tired, I know when I am energized, I know when I am safe, I know when I am uncomfortable or in danger, they tell you they don't babies don't go, Oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. You know, I want my mom, I don't want you. And I'm going to cry if you try and take me but I'm going to be really happy when I'm in my mom's arms. Like, right? it's interesting. Like they're kind of good at like uh, asserting their own needs. And a lot of us like yeah. really get conditioned out of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, but they, they don't, they're not at that stage where they can intellectually think about it. They don't have the right. narrator in place. It's all about their body. And so, and what I notice about young children, so when we get into the school system, for example, you know, children who are in preschool and kindergarten, they love to move. They just love being in their bodies and exploring through jumping and rolling and hugging their friends and maybe bumping into each other and sitting too close and, you know, like they want to get dirty and they don't care if they're wet, you know, I mean, I'm speaking generally, of course, every person is unique but you know what I mean that that age group so much of of their exploration is still a very much embodied experience and then we start to sit them down at desks and say you need to be still and you need to focus and now it's all about your brain now it's all about being intelligent and learning and I'm going to fill you with knowledge and you're going to sit still and focus and pay attention And then they start to not feel as comfortable being in their body and the disconnect starts to happen. And also we start to do that as a, as a general, um, you know, uh, sort of community, like how we condition our kids, like, you know, you know, you know, to be a a proper young girl, you need to sit still and behave in a certain way. Whereas boys, we give them a wider berth, like you can go and be rambunctious and take up lots of space, because that's what boys do. It's just boys being boys. 
um, right? So there's lots of ways in, we, in which we sort of uncondition what it is that we are innately born with. And my thing is we need to really honor the intelligence that we already have within us that we were born with and not strip that away. Because then when kids get to be like 12, 13, 14, you know, there's this, especially when they go through puberty, then there's this whole other thing that comes around their body. Like, don't look at me. And am I the right, you know, do I look right? You know, or is my body's not the same as somebody else? And it's all these comparisons and vulnerability is really at stake and, right? So it just kind of continues from there. Um, and then, of course, I mean, gosh, we could talk so much about the more that we disconnect the, the mind and the body, you know, and we live out of our body, how that can really perpetuate ways in which we um, self-harm and, you know, really grow to dislike our body and critique our body and hurt our body, whether it's cutting or drug abuse or, you know, gosh, there's a host of things. So, well, I think one of the uh, maybe ways we might approach that is through the lens of gender mm-hmm. and, and like the diversity mm-hmm. uh, of gender as this massive spectrum right. and as a, as a real phenomenon, mm-hmm. one that's an embodied phenomenon, but one that is at odds with school systems and structures and and how we're expected to be and behave and how we're socialized as normal or not normal, uh, stigmatized, shamed, and so on. How does that happen differentially for uh, male sex and female sex bodies? And then how does that matter with respect to gender? Um, So what's happening in schools, you mean specifically around gender? Sure. Okay. I just want to make sure I <laughs> understood the question. So I can, I have this amazing capacity to ask these extremely <laughs> nebulous questions and it's because I'm a teacher and like it, it, it makes a lot of sense in some cases, but not necessarily on a podcast. No problem. Well, I mean, there's a lot we can talk about gender. So I'll just start and again, jump mm-hmm. in at any point where, you know, you might want more clarification. Sure. I mean, you know, so thinking about gender within the school system has certainly been changing. Um, you know, but yet in many ways, schools still perpetuate this idea of boy girl. I mean, you know, schools are still very gender binary in the sense that we really think of, we have the male population and the female population. And, you know, that's always happening in terms of, you know, we call students boy, girl, we have our boy, girl bathrooms, we have our boy, girl teams, Um, teachers often line their students up, you know, boys on this side, girls on this side. So, you know, there's still sort of that idea of, you know, that are, we really have these two very specific categories of gender. Um, but, you know, there are more and more students that are, are starting to, you know, to speak out and say, listen, I'm not sure that I actually fit within that category. I am mm. questioning my gender, or I actually don't feel like the gender that I was, or the biological sex that I was born into. I feel different in my body. And so we are starting to have different conversations and, 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 and more things are happening around that. Um, it depends on the school and who's running the school. So there's that one aspect of gender. But I think the other part that we probably want to talk about too is, is even just sort of how this idea of what it means to be boy or girl 
is is um, supported or or not supported in schools through the language we use and the assumptions we make and the stereotypes that are there around what sort of constitutes appropriate behavior, ways of being, dressing, all of those things, right? So they're kind yeah, of- And they're all artificial constructs. These absolutely. are all, look, so like if I feel a certain way in my body, right? I feel there's a, there's a sense of like correctness and, and rightness and like wholeness and selfness within my body. And if that is misaligned with the stories I'm being told about what, yes. about how I'm supposed to experience yeah. myself, and my body through gender, uh, meaning that like I feel a certain way, but then the stories of what a boy is and is supposed to be just are in total misalignment. Yes. But then the expectation is that I align my existence mm -hmm. with the stories. Mm -hmm. That's totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. We need a totally different paradigm shift where we honor humans as real beings Absolutely. and start with them and let them write their own narrative. Absolutely, and that, you know, you know, just, you know, we get to decide. So, you know, there's the one thing about being born and in terms of, you know, I mean, from birth, we, we sort of determine, you know, boy, girl based on uh, genitalia, mm. right? Which is really just biology, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how that person will identify. You know, that is something that, you know, um, I think, you know, to young children, as they sort of are able to articulate more, will do so, you know, so as a baby, we, we make the decision for them, but that shouldn't be, you know, sort of um, written in stone that just because my child was born with a vagina or a penis, therefore they are a boy or a girl and they always will be. And, you know, but that's very much the norm. I mean, people have gender reveal parties like, woohoo, I'm having a boy. And then they paint the your room's blue and buy them all. Is that what that is? Uh, I haven't even heard of this until this week because there's like a thing in the news that's like, I don't even care what that is. Oh, was that about the fires? <laughs> or something like that. I like, I just, it just seemed like a trope and I'm just, I'm not interested yeah. in, in just following that, that line of reasoning because it's just a waste of time yeah. largely. But like a gender reveal party? Yeah, that's, that? that's become a real, that's a, like a thing. Um, I think Why? probably been in the last few years where, you know, uh, people find out based on ultrasound whether or not their their child has a penis or vagina so okay if it's a penis therefore i'm having a boy if it's a vagina therefore i'm having a girl and then they have people come over and they have parties and they either release balloons or cut a cake or whatever and release like the color okay. or sure enjoy life what does that have to do with gender though well it doesn't to me gender seems to be something that kind of needs to be self-determined yeah. it seems like a, like almost an absurd concept like i'm going to it's like i don't know like uh declaring their religion before yeah, they're yeah. born almost <laughs> like yeah. my i'm going i have a baby and it turns out it's a socialist yeah. and we're gonna have a party because it's a social i mean maybe but maybe it will choose to be something else. So it seems like the language is wrong. The language is totally it's, wrong. It's a yeah. sex reveal party. It's a sex reveal party. It's, it's based okay. on, is it basically a genitalia reveal party? Why? Having <laughs> I, I, this baby I have shows that it has penis. <laughs> and because we have created meaning around penis, we therefore go penis equals boy. And then yep. people go And I want the whole neighborhood to know this. <laughs> okay sure yeah, exactly. whatever enjoy your life yeah even though i mean you know ugh, yeah we're bringing a lot of attention to the genitalia even though you know it's not we never have to reveal that in our lives mm -hmm. it's nobody's business what we have mm -hmm. beneath our clothing 
but yet it's it's sort of the what, biggest. <laughs> what do you think is a healthy like developmentally appropriate and like and in, in, say scientific uh, approach to helping someone uh, figure out their gender identity and to what extent is the body an important part of that process? Hmm. You know, I'm not sure if I'm really a, a like. I mean, I can tell you some of the things I think. I don't know if I. Yeah. What are your hypotheses? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing that we can do, again, from the moment our child is born, is to, one, not put any emphasis on boy-girl, you know, like just kind of right from the beginning trying to, you know, sort of take, not do all that conditioning that so naturally happens. So, um, again, with my grandson, you know, even though we use the pronoun he, and we've, you know, his, you know, we have a, a, a name for him that is, is known as a, a male name. Um, we don't use terms like, you know, good boy or strong little man, or we, we are very, very conscious to never, ever, ever use terminology that brings attention to the fact that right now, because we use a male pronoun, um, that 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 there needs to be this identification of being male so you know my daughter is very um and her, her, her and my son-in-law they're very comfortable putting him in all different kinds of clothing all different kinds of colors um in you know letting him play with all different kinds of toys not surrounding him with things that represent a particular identification so that he just gets to be a baby and, and as my daughter would always say you know, he's a baby, that's it, you know, so, you know, he's just a little person, you know, with feelings, and, you know, he's learning his thoughts, he's learning to communicate, but what, what he is in terms of that sort of, you know, biology is totally irrelevant, and so then it's really, and I think it's also in terms of the body, um, you will, again, not putting the attention on the parts of the body, as if, like, you know, like, like the penis, like, oh, you know, um, you know, like, it's just the funny ways that, that people get around, like, be changing a baby's diaper, and, like, sometimes, you know, dads will be uncomfortable, like, oh, it's a little girl, it's like, it's just, like, if you kind of take away all of that, and you're just like, this is my child, and I'm doing something to care for them, without making meaning of, the genitals or the relationship or you're doing something wrong because of this idea of you know male female or you know I think it, it makes it easier for the child to just be comfortable in their bodies and then to get a sense of them as they get older going well who am I and what makes me comfortable and you know when they start to get to choose clothing for example like what's your favorite color what do you want to wear well let's go shopping what do you choose and being okay with that choice. It's like when my son was little, he loved watching his sister, um, you know, and so she went through a little stage where she loved, you know, dressing up as a, as a princess. And um, so he wanted to dress up with, as a princess and that was totally fine. I mean, he could wear do whatever he wanted. He wanted his fingernails painted, we painted his fingernails. Like it was just like, let's not make these things a big deal. Children are, they're, they're just trying to see where they are in the world, right? And, and if we make something wrong, then they're going to have that association. I, as a boy, can't do that. That's wrong. Boys don't do that. It's like a boy who cries. Boys don't cry. You know, be strong. 
you know, you're supposed to be tough. That's what, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be so careful about our language and all of the messages that we're giving. And they're going to get it anyway, because it's always out there. I mean, I know for, you know, as parents, we can also say to people, listen, you know, please, I don't want you telling my child that that's not okay with me. You know, and you can choose the programs they watch on TV. Like my grandson doesn't watch TV. Like, you know, he probably will not for a long time. And if he does, it'll be very specific about sort of what he watches because of those messages. So I think that's the big thing is, is just allowing children, you know, to be in their bodies and to kind of, um, yeah, just be Let able them to choose to be themselves is what them. it sounds like. Yeah. Like ex exploring what it means to be this like human being. Yeah. Um, during this process of just acquiring all this information from zero to seven. And it's like, before we even have the ability to, yeah. uh, to learn in the way that we do after that age and letting them just be and helping support that and not creating these negative emotional associations with between stories and self that make self feel like they're wrong. Yeah. Because the self isn't wrong. Exactly. The stories are wrong. Exactly. And you think about, you know, like all children are so different. So we're like putting, you know, all of the, the aside of whether I identify as male or female or any of those things, we all move through our world with, you know, ways in which we, you know, express masculinity and femininity. You know, some of us um, are, are very emotional and, you know, quite sensitive and, um, and others are less so, but that's not about whether you are identify as male or female. I mean, that is just, again, a sense of, that's just, that is very much who we are in our personalities. You know, um, some of it could be how we're raised, but you know, some of it is very much a nature as well, sure. right? And, and that's the part where I think we need to really honor each child for who they are. That's the big thing for me. And I was, that was something I always had to keep front of mind. I just need to honor my child and I will, you know, open, try and open a door and say, Hey, would you like to, you know, with my son, I really was like, I don't want to him not to be exposed to dance. So I put him in ballet class at three. He let me know he wasn't interested. <laughs> yeah. And that was fine. Right. It, it, and that's cool. That was it. It wasn't his thing. He, it just didn't make him feel comfortable. Now, he was also the only boy there. Maybe if there had been other boys, he would have felt more comfortable because he could have. So maybe already he had this association with somehow I feel different because I'm the mm. only one. I don't know. I, I mean, he couldn't tell me. All I know is he just refused to go in the class. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is he, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I just think it's really important that we just you know, really give all of, you know, give our children many opportunities and really just follow their lead and really, really listen. And when they start to speak, we need to pay attention to what they're saying. Yeah. Don't try and tell them that they think something different. Don't try and justify it or, you know, maybe what you meant was, you know, if a child is saying, you know, I'm a girl, when we, you know, sort of identified them at birth as biologically male, okay, let's, let's pay attention to that, you know, and yeah, and let's support you in your process of self direction, yes, as a learner. And that's really the key to everything. Yes. And it's why our school systems are so terrible uh, at actually helping develop whole humans, because that's not what they're for. Uh, the research on 
the body as a, a, it, with respect to just learning is absolutely fascinating. And I always try to take it from the standpoint of like, okay, so we have like the, the, these people who care about like holistic learning. Cool, wicked. The, the arguments and paradigms and assumptions that we come from often aren't very convincing for people who are institutionalized and very, very much conditioned to think that we can only do things within the paradigm of the, the structured hegemonic school system. And and so from their standpoint, what might be a persuasive argument could be that, okay, if, if what matters to the school system mm-hmm. is academic achievement, right? Because we want to say we, the Ontario kids are all better at math than the kids in Shanghai, which, by the way, is such a messed up thing to do. That is such a disgusting idea to begin with. We should not be doing that. That is absolute authoritarianism. It's coercion. It's not honoring humans as individuals at all. But if that's what you want to do, and all you care about is achievement uh, as expressed through learning, well, learning kind of matters, doesn't it? And what then does the science say about the relationship and learning. Well, if we actually look at neuroscience and we look at how movement potentiates neuroplasticity and how rest after learning helps consolidate memory, we would really have to redesign the school system completely differently to align it with what we know about the brain Mm. and what we know about being a human. Mm So those arguments tend to just be like, oh, that's interesting. And then they go away, Mm -hmm. which is why I think we need to have totally different paradigms of education Mm -hmm. and schooling, formal and informal. And I really appreciate that you're working both within the system, trying to train teacher educators Mm -hmm. and working outside the system, trying to do whatever it is that you're trying to do through your organization, Mm -hmm. which has a wicked name, Embodied Learnings. Thank you. Um, So... uh, Tell me more, please, about your organization, oh. Embodied Learnings. Why are you why are you taking that kind of tack for one, like an outside the system kind of approach? And what is it that you're trying to do to build capacity for us becoming polar humans? Right. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that Embodied Learnings even got started was because of all of my work, um, you know, with teacher candidates over the years, where I've been mm. a um, a dance educator. And so, I mean, I've been doing uh, dance education, gosh, probably a good 25 plus years. I mean, it's been a really long time. You know, when I first did my undergrad at York University, I did a whole year of um, dance education uh, for, you know, and it started with sort of the primary junior grades and then went up to intermediate. And, um, you know, and then as I got into teacher education myself as an educator, I just realized, my goodness, you know, like um, everything we do in teacher education, we're constantly sitting and, you know, right. There's just yes. constantly sitting. And then, <laughs> you know, what you see in the schools is that everybody's constantly sitting. And yet all the time people are saying, I want to move. But even those coming through the program who say like, you're making me sit too long, they then go into the class and they make their students sit all the time. So there's Mm. something in this cycle of this constant sitting for learning, like to, to, you know, like um, creating knowledge and thinking is meant to be sedentary, like it's serious, you know, we don't get up and have fun and move. And, and so I just saw it over and over and over and over again that, and, um, and yet when students would be in my class, so at Western University, I'm the dance and drama specialist. And all we do is move. 
And that was starting to become like the most fun class because they were, they would say, thank you so much for making it interactive. And I mean, my whole thing was, I don't know how you can do dance, dance and drama if you're not doing it, but you know, it's, you would see something change. There was this whole shift in, you know, students sort of ability to get more comfortable and to mm. connect and to collaborate and to have fun. And they really looked forward to the class and, and I just, you know, and I would ask them all the time, like, what are you seeing when you go into practicum? A lot of sitting, a lot less movement, definitely very little of the arts. And so I just knew that there was a huge need. After all the years of work, I went, you know what? Um, there's, there, there are those of us doing this work, but they're kind of here, there, and everywhere. Um, and I really wanted to bring much more attention and advocate for the body in the curriculum and in the classroom. And now I, we're very much um, specific to the elementary school as opposed to secondary. That's a whole other beast. Um, that's not my area of expertise, though I think they could use just as much help. So you never know that we might branch out. Oh no, they need way more help. <laughs> so yeah. Way, way, way more help. But yeah, start, start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of how it really came to be. It was just over the years of observation and just saying, okay, wait a minute, like, this is really critical. And, you know, I, I have a friend who's a principal and she said, you know, you've always been so progressive and yet it's still not really happening in our schools. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can make my voice nice and loud. And um, I did found this with my daughter. So, you know, I'm cool. really delighted that she came on with me. Um, and because she, again, also is really believes in, in this work and what we're doing. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, I really want teachers to know, like there are, you know, so many other ways in which we can support students and schools are getting to become so incredibly, um, diversified now, you know, we teachers have classrooms where they have students that are new to Canada, they're English language learners, um, you know, with very little to some, um, capacity to, to speak the language. We have students that, um, identify, you know, on the autism spectrum, those that have different behavioral issues that are on special learning plans, um, like IEPs, we have, um, you know, just a great, great diversity. Of, which is of, wonderful. Of children. That's what we want. Yeah, which is, yes. But in saying that, you know, we have to think differently about how we're teaching. And um, it's, you know, one of the ways in which we can really kind of, you know, bring our whole community together within a classroom is by actually getting in our bodies. It's, it's kind of a differentiated way of instructing too, you know, by getting students, you know, working together and in their bodies and being exploratory in different ways. Um, so, and it really helps the child that actually, you know, does need to be out of their desk or it helps the child that maybe doesn't, can't understand what you're saying but can kind of pick up on what they're seeing and feeling in their body, right? So there's lots of different ways in which this can really support a whole different way of, of students working together in the classroom. Um, and of course, it really, really supports mental health and well-being. Um, that's a, such a critical piece now. I mean, anxiety and depression, and, and there's so a host of ways in which students have been struggling as years have gone on. And I mean, you know, there's, there's a waiting list of, of children looking to get um, support, you know, from 
uh, outside of school. I mean, I think the waiting list for mental health supports now is anywhere from one and a half to two years. It's really, really high. Wait, what? Yeah. It's How? Wait, wait, tell really, me about really that. Yeah. Um, for in wait, in what context? What do you, what, what, so, what so if your child, um, you know, is needs any kind of support, you know, let's say they are struggling with anxiety, for example, um, you know, usually to get publicly funded support, there's a huge waiting list. There are only so many places that you can go. Like if you have, um, you know, private insurance or you can pay for it, you can usually get the support you need quicker. But for families that don't have that, yeah, it can be a really, really long waiting list of- That's a horrendous yeah. inequity. Absolutely. So wait, are you, this is a Canadian thing? Yeah. An Ontario thing or like- yeah. This is no, this is terrible. Yeah. That's that has to change. Yeah. Like it's it's look, we have a school system that's causing a lot of these problems. Right. And then people who have the fewest resources to be able to deal with the traumas that are being imposed upon them uh, are often the people who have the, the most and it's just it's awful. Like this is just a really really bad situation mm -hmm. and like it it needs repair. And I really don't see it happening unless like we look at each other as members of communities rather than as parts of institutions. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge difference. Like we need to know each other. Mm -hmm. We need to like spend time with each other. We need to, to experience each other in different ways so that we actually care. Mm -hmm. it, it makes such a difference when we know people mm -hmm. as opposed to existing in the same organization that has some kind of like responsibility, but like the people don't know us and therefore don't care about us. Uh, I really think one of the, the fundamental problems in education is the bureaucracy itself mm -hmm, and the sure. institution itself. And, and, and I see so many like really caring, caring, loving people going into becoming a teacher. And then all of the incentives yeah. are set up all like whether they are like positive incentives or they're conditioning coercive, like don't do that kind of structures. They're all set up to make you to condition you into a particular kind of role yes. that really is not a very educational one. It's, it's, quite problematic I, I think like as a teacher often the teacher is learning the most mm -hmm. in the classroom rather than like facilitating like individualized and real meaningful learning for those people and, and that's there's so many things yeah. so many things i'm just going on a rant <laughs> right now but there's so many things that need to change absolutely and so that just kind of triggered me a little bit those things really bother me yeah. when like kids like oh we're not even providing the su enough support to have to wait two years. That's no, this is like, this is part of the reason why we have an increasing epidemic of suicide yes. in our societies. So they're clearly not getting the supports they need. And that's awful. And it's changeable though. It's absolutely changeable. Well, if we so what are some things <laughs> that can be done that maybe if you're a teacher, you might want to learn that could help create less trauma could help, um, facilitate preventative mental health care for young people and help them discover who they are as whole beings? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just in terms of what it is that, you know, I'm really advocating for is that we, again, make sure that we really, um, you know, root the body in everything we do. 
So in the sense of, you know, the body is in the classroom, but we need to use the body. So we need to really teach to the whole child, not to just parts of the child. So you don't just go to phys ed to then get students physically moving and then go back and then teach to their brain. We need to make sure that everything that we are doing is really being taught to the whole child so that they have the capacity to to think critically, to, you know, make um, decisions, to problem solve, to do those things, which, you know, are often intellectual, but we can also tap into the body in terms of, you know, it's not just about what we think, it's also about what we feel. So, you know, as I'm problem solving and I'm making decisions, what is my body telling me? So how are ways that I can actually use the body is to help facilitate my ability to learn about myself and the others in my world around me. Um, so, you know, again, it, it's a matter of um, providing sort of those moments. So again, I think one, we need to think differently about how it is we get children moving. Um, it's not just recess and physical education and the rest of the time we sit, it's that we can actually build movement into our day so we can, I think it's really good to actually remember that the brain has only so much time in which it can really think. I think most of us, even adults, I think it's 20 minutes when we start to actually shut off. So we need to provide moments where we just say, we're taking a brain break and we're going to get up and we're going to move around the class or stretch or put on some music and do an action song or play a really fun, quick, you know, movement drama game, whatever it may be. Mm. So there's those things. It's also, how do you learn the curriculum by actually bringing the body into it? So you don't have to do it for every subject for the entire period, but if you are doing something really complicated in math, Math can be really difficult for children when they're at a desk and they got pencil to paper, but if you get them up in their bodies to actually explore a concept like symmetry or um, um, ge geometrical shapes or being on a grid um, or this idea of, you know, where my body is in relation to space, for example, just the doing of it can help sort of solidify the understanding like oh this is what you mean yeah isn't that called like total physical response or something like that the idea that you take a concept and you kind of like use your body to kind of mimic it as a way to consolidate like uh well for processing but also to consolidate memory and it also our name embodied learnings also came from the methodology embodied learning which is that same idea that is an embodied means of of learning where you actually you know it's, it's the mind and the body working together. So it's sort of that, both that critical thinking and sort of physicality of, of how it is that we are able to, um, you know, take concepts and make meaning of them. And then when they're sort of in the body more internalized, we also have the ability to recall them. You know, I've had students say to me, you know, out of all the things I ever learned in my life, the things that I remember are the ones where my teacher had me doing something. So like grade 11 um, science, I had a student say um, that she always remembered, it was something I think electrons and neurons, protons, some complicated thing in chemistry, but because they had to physically be those, um, you know, they had to be the electrons and the neurons and buzz around or do whatever they had to do. It, she remembered and so then it that and never lost that recollect recollection so suddenly you have that knowledge that's very you know 
present, right? Where most of the time when we learn, it goes in one ear and out the other. And you're like, sorry, what with the what was that? And when was it? What were the dates? Or mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, really crucially, like it's it, it's just basic learning science that we learn better when we learn things from multiple different like yes, angles. Yeah. And, and that that's important. And using the body is a crucial part of that. We can definitely reinforce memory by doing things yes. with our body. But also like it, it's often very important just to like get kids up to yes. oxygenate and glycogenate yes. the brain. Sure. And that happens just through like getting up. And so you need, there's basically like three neurochemicals that are involved in learning. It's like dopamine, acetylcholine, and uh, adrenaline. And adrenaline mm-hmm. needs to be there. You need to have a little bit of stress right. in order to learn. Like if we're just like not yes. paying any attention, we're not in a learning state. Yeah. And, and just getting up like potentiates the brain in a way that I don't think enough teachers realize, enough humans realize yeah. is important. And it really does facilitate attention mm-hmm. Uh, and, and which is absolutely a precondition for learning. Yeah. And so that's really, 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 really crucial. And I think more people need to know yeah. these things and figure out how to integrate these things into their process. I also think it's very important that we think very honestly about the relationship, again, between stress and learning when we're talking about too much stress. Mm. If we put too much stress on brains, it floods working memory and it, yeah. you just can't process things. Yeah. And that really has significant implications. If we're overstressing kids, we're not teaching them. We're not, we can't expect them to learn. So how do we do that? Well, we need part, a lot of mediating stress as an individual is an embodied thing. It's almost all an embodied thing, really. It's not like, okay, I I have these narratives that are making me really stressed out. And then I, I try to fight the narratives with other narratives, but that's just this argument in my mind that just reinforces the stress. If, however, I can interrupt that somehow mm. by connecting to the body and finding calm. 100%. I can reduce that reactivity. I can open up the working yeah. memory. It becomes accessible. And there's a lot more that I can now do yeah. as a creative person. And like moving in and out of these like stress, non-stress states is probably something a lot of people should experiment with in terms of their own emotional journey, but especially in terms of teaching and learning because it's really, really important. But instead what we do is we have these absolutely arbitrary like time deadlines like 40 minutes of like x learning you're gonna do this and it's gonna be okay we don't have enough time so you gotta go really fast and then you better memorize this and and then we know like okay like 90 percent of what is learned in schools is forgotten and within two weeks anyways because it's just how the brains work like it's, it's fine like there's something called the ebbing house forgetting curve over time we will forget most of the things we learned because it's not relevant yeah, yeah. What makes things relevant is emotion and the body is the mediator of emotion. So we need to take the body seriously in education, but we don't really do that formally. Yeah. It's interesting. As you were talking, it made me think of sort of that um, fight, flight, or freeze, you know, Mm. so that either people get into that fight mode when they, you know, it's too much or they, they want to flee or they kind of freeze and it's like, you know, and I was just thinking about how with students, you know, they can either get really, really anxious, right? So if you're not, if you're just constantly at a, at a problem, right? And you're just thinking, thinking the, the anxiety can rise. For some, it makes them so tired that they just flake out. I can't even deal with it. Like I'm, I'm fleeing here, right? I'm going to completely remove myself. And now I'm going to miss everything that's coming after this anyway, because I'm gone you know, or again. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important to, 
to really look at the ways in which we are teaching and if we really do want our students to achieve and and um, be successful and again we have to even talk about like what the heck do we even mean by successful right but if i mean for me you know if i were to come in and say this is how i envision it could work and again i'm very much a you know of the mindset that every teacher you know, they have to know their students in their class and how things work. But, you know, something that I would really recommend is that, you know, you let the students know that, you know, they are going to have many opportunities throughout their day, every single day. It's just going to be embedded. It's just part of what we do that we are going to move our bodies. And I would, I think one, it's wonderful to find a way to start your day with some kind of ritual routine that says we're starting school right now and let's get right, let's get ready, let's prepare. Hmm. You know, we have to know that our students coming into schools in the morning, they may have come from an incredibly stressful time. Parents could be fighting. Maybe a parent went to work early morning. They may not have had breakfast. They may not have slept. I mean, there's a host of things. So we need to bring students in the class and say, I want you to, to now know you are here, you are in this community and we are going to prepare our day together. So that could be mindfulness, doing some kind of breathing exercise, stretching, something that just gets them really grounded in the moment that requires the body, right? So all the things you may be feeling that are in your mind, let's just, let's just, you know, find a way to get into your body and feel grounded, you know, um, not that we want to ignore that, but, you know, again, we have to, to find a way of, of, of kind of situating our children, right? That's the first thing. And then from there, you know, that alone would be massive. Wouldn't that be amazing? If you just, if you just added that one like intervention into like schooling practices, that would change, I think, quite a lot on its own. But please keep going. I want to hear about yeah, Tracy's school of the future. <laughs> what would it? What does this look like? Um, and then I would definitely be like just again, depending on the age of my students, I would know how much time can I expect them to sit whether that's on a carpet or in their desk at stations with groups. So we need to throw in those breaks. We need to have those moments of, you know, you've all been really focused, but you know, let's get up. We're going to re-energize the body and we're going to awaken that brain again. If anybody was feeling a little bit tired or maybe overthinking what they were doing and then doing something fun. So there's that. I would also, again, really integrate it into the curriculum. So look at what it is you're teaching and say, where are the moments that I can bring those kids into their body? So again, I already gave examples of math, but let's say it's social studies and you are, you know, exploring the history of indigenous people, for example, you know, can you um, talk about um, you know, something that's too, like, it depends on the topic, right? But maybe you can get them in their bodies to, to talk about the, you know, what was going on in the stories and how do you think that people felt? And I want you to show me through your body, you know, what that emotion might look like, or there's mm. lots of ways we can do it, or we can do role play or, mm. right? So a great one is tableau. Do you ever do tableaus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, They're super fun. I got to, I had a great time teaching yeah. junior high for a couple of years, exhausting, <laughs> but yeah, like tableaus are fantastic. So it's like, okay, the, uh, I, I want you guys to represent with your bodies in one like frozen scene, yeah. all, all five of you, like 
what this looks like or something like that. And they will come up with super creative things. Yeah. And then like, okay, instead of that, you're going to do three tra- tableaus and you're going to tell a story like, moving between those three scenes. Yes. What would that look like? And they, it really concretizes. Yes understanding in a way that I think a lot of people would say, oh, that doesn't work. No, actually it does. It does. I mean, forcing kids to study until three in the morning works too, but there are consequences of that. At what cost are we doing that? And it's it's a very significant mental health cost. And I'm, I'm coming from this thinking back to my context teaching in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Wonderful experience to teach in Taiwan. If you ever want like the ideal teaching context, go to like a Confucian land because teachers are seen as like these like almost like gods and like people treat you with respect, right, right. which does not happen almost anywhere else. And, um, but in this school, it was a super like kind of elite, like they're all gonna go to the top US u- universities kind of school and yes, I can get you fives on all of your APs. I can absolutely help you understand like all the things you need to understand for first year university. I can help you write an amazing essay, help you win debate awards, all these things. But if we're not centering the human self as an emotional being Mm -hmm. in what we do, it almost never even gets thought of because the pressures to do all the other things are in the demands, the amount, the sheer informational load itself is just much too great. Mm-hmm. So like, it, I think there's a problem uh, with just coming in with like, okay, let's add some emo- like embodied emotionality stuff mm-hmm. to what we're already doing. It's kind of like how with like, there's like, I know the the woman scientist of the year award, as opposed to, I mean, so like we center the man's experience as the normal experience. And then there's women's studies, there's women's science. There's a similar parallel with how we do school. So we have this kind of like cognitive, hyper-stressed, over-caffeinated kind of like dominant, like emotional paradigm. Mm -hmm. And then if we want to, we want to add these things to try to make it a little bit better. But the thing is like the, there's way too many pressures Mm -hmm for the, the dominant paradigm for these, I think, for these like solutions to be really well integrated and they tend to become secondary uh, and then forgotten about really easily. Or we'll do it like uh, like self-care uh, minute mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing and just add that in. I think we need a model that prioritizes the whole human at the center and then do the, the cognitive academic stuff around that. Yeah, I think so we need a revolution in schools. Yeah. yeah, there's so much compartmentalizing in schools. And we really look at, you know, here are the subjects that are the most important. Here's the ones that we're willing to let go of if we have funding cuts. So the arts are always the first to go. Yep. You know, we are always looking at, you know, the maths and sciences and the languages. Those are the, the really key ones, um, you know, as opposed to they all have great value. So how do we really bring them together? and how to we do more cross-curricular type teaching. Um, so there's sort of, you know, all that thing around what gets privileged is, is a really key point. Um, but I was going somewhere else and I just ah, lost that, my train of thought. But, um, oh, it was, it was going back to, again, the, uh, you know, the body in terms of, um, yeah, there's still this idea that, you know, we're doing serious work when we're thinking. And somehow, if you get up and you move, 
it's it's fluffy it doesn't really matter it's not as important right um and you see that too when people go out into the work field you know in terms of what we value right we love to go and see you know people dance or sing or go to movies or whatever but you know the real work is you know those that decide to go in the profession of being a doctor or a lawyer yeah. or you know it's just yeah. it's such an interesting contradiction um you know and again a lot of times people even don't follow their heart's desire because they've sort of been told that that's really not that important or they really can't make it or whatever it is and yet where you know things like movement you know so dance visual art music drama if we just want to bring them all in and talk about the arts, you know, those are what help us make those connections. You know, they're really the vehicle for us to be fully in touch with the self, to really be able to get a sense of, you know, again, you know, how do I feel? And how can I make meaning of these things? And, um, and it connects to every aspect of our life. But yet, we, we really compartmentalize them and just say, well, those are just an art form like that's just learning mm -hmm. to dance or that's just you know theater and that's maybe good for entertainment but it's not about learning or it's not it's not real life it's not real life exactly. except it totally is real life. it is totally real life and i think that we as a culture would be so much happier <laughs> you know, if we were allowed to, you know, to be vulnerable, if we were allowed to really um, express ourselves, to, to tap into the emotions, even just to tap into them and express them and, and have that part of our experience, you know, would be amazing. And so again, part of that whole, you know, visual vision that I have when I think about what's possible in elementary schools is that, you know, by you know, creating all these moments where students get to use the whole body and to be up and moving and doing these things, you know, beginning of the day, end of the day, all through the day, you know, you actually will have far greater attention, far more engagement because students will be excited. You know, they will, you know, it's like they have something to look forward to. And we're also teaching to all the, the different ways. Some students, you know, they need that kinesthetic experience to really make those connections. For those that they may not, it's not going to harm them. If anything, it's still going to, it'll still do something wonderful for them, mm -hmm. you know. So we need to also find ways in which we are, you know, really supporting all different learners. And the other thing, too, is that we need to, be really um, clear that all students, all bodies have the capacity to do absolutely anything that we put forth. What we need to do is just make sure that we're creating the environment in which it's accessible, right? So that's mm. the other big thing, you know, is that it doesn't matter if you have a student with low mobility or a student in a wheelchair or you have a small space, everything can be adapted. We just need to be creative thinkers. And to make that the goal, the goal is to like, okay, it's, it's to figure out who the learner is and what their needs are, help them figure out their needs, help them set goals and help, mm -hmm. help them move towards that, yeah. giving feedback and so on. And so if say, well, I mean, I have a really good example. Mm. My, one of my best friends, his father had a horrible accident recently. Mm. 
And um, basically they went to the cottage and he just, he's a very active man. He's in, in his seventies, but extreme, he does Tai Chi every day. He's a very embodied human, mm. uh, brilliant artist, by the way. Right. He fainted, he landed on his neck badly and he's been paralyzed oh. for weeks now. Uh, my friend uh, is an actor, uh, has, is very much in touch with his body yeah. through acting modalities and so on, has come back from Vancouver to Toronto to help heal his dad through yeah. qi, Qigong and energetic therapies and massage and touch. And his father's recovery has been incredibly rapid. Mm. It's been really, really, really quite amazing. Um, but like the and there's, it's very also instructive from an educational standpoint. Mm. I, I think this is a, a good story. What you need to do with any learner is start where they are. So for his dad, like a goal for today is might be to grip a cup. Right. Um, it's not to do 20 jumping jacks, right? right. Like if we're, if, if we're establishing these goals as teachers for an entire group of kids, yeah. those are our goals. They're not their goals. They're not meaningful to the individual. And they're also irrelevant to their growth yes. unless we're just lucky, mm -hmm. unless there's a happy coincidence between uh, my goal as a teacher and that kid's goal as a human. What we need to do instead is figure out who the kids are and help them set their own meaningful, true, self-directed, authentic goals. And when we look at things from that paradigm, then we can identify like, okay, what is their next step based on their zone of proximal development? What is their plus one? And so for um, my friend's father, uh, by focusing on just the next step yeah. and, and getting, the, getting the right kind of support, getting love, getting time to rest, mm -hmm. getting all sorts of different ways to like help heal the body also. And they've got amazing strategies at this hospital in Toronto. He's, he's really making rapid progress, mm -hmm. but, but it's because they're doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. If we went the right way with kids in schools, man, they could do absolutely incredible things. Kids are geniuses, but they don't know it. And then we condition the genius out of them and we turn them into like employees. Right. And there's such a disconnect mm. between like our roles and who we actually are as humans. And you're starting a process while well, you're, you're part of a long like, history of people wanting to do this, I guess we can go back centuries and thousands of years in the history of humanity and wanting to do this, but you're doing it again in a different context in a way that I think makes a lot of sense and focusing on young kids mm -hmm. and helping them figure out who they are mm -hmm. through the vehicle of their body. That is the, the human experience is such an important thing for the world. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> There's so much in there I want to talk about. Um, I want to go back to, so one, I definitely want to get to talking about uh, the body and um, how it can really break down um, if we are there. also not doing this. Um, and I had a knee injury last year that I can also reflect on. But before I do that, I want to just look at how education continues to change through history. And if okay. you look back in, in the 1970s, for example, probably the late 60s, but really into the 70s, how like dance education was such a big thing. There was a huge, huge movement during that time to really get students moving and in their bodies and being creative and self-expressive. I mean, and that probably, you know, really fit with sort of coming after the civil rights movement and moving into women's liberation and, you know, just changing the narrative around how people saw their roles and you know there was much more question around what does it mean to be a man or a woman it was still very gendered but at least people were you know questioning and so interestingly in schools 
you know, movement and dance was, you know, a much bigger part of sort of um, how it is that we, you know, taught our children. And so some mm. of the most wonderful books I have are actually come out of the 70s by phenomenal really? pioneers. And then you go into the 80s and 90s and things really kind of, you know, as education changes, that got really pulled out. And now we're to the point where physical education is maybe twice a week. And in some parts of the world, like I think in the U.S. They- I got a statistic for you. Oh, yeah. It's the one statistic I've brought to this. <laughs> okay. uh, it's from the CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control in mm. the United States. Less than one quarter, that is 24%. Of children six to seventeen years of age participate in sixty minutes of physical activity every day. Right. That is a complete structural dehumanization yeah. Yeah. of the person. That's that's really that's that's that is evidence of people being quite sick. Yeah, 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 for sure. And you know, there's schools that they've gotten rid of their recesses, or they might have had like a morning and an afternoon recess, and then they only have one and you know, because they need more time to teach. I mean, we, there is a capacity, tones. right? Like, yeah, there's a capacity, like you look at what they're doing in other parts of the world. Finland's a perfect example of some really phenomenal um, things that are happening where, you know, it's much more inquiry-based where students are really, um, you know, working together in collaboration and they don't need as much time either, right? They don't spend as much time in school nor do those kids go home and have hours and hours of homework. And yet they're doing very, very well and they're really learning. So, you know, there's, there's certainly other approaches. Um, you know, you look at, you know, schools where they spend a lot of time outdoors in nature, you know, you yeah. know what a beautiful way to connect to the body. And, Absolutely. Right. And, and again, you know, that is, is showing to have phenomenal impact on the ability mm-hmm. to be engaged and to learn. Um, even it's home- also a good strategy in the context of COVID. So like if the science seems to indicate that we it, the disease is most contagious indoors when it accumulates, let's go outside when Absolutely. we can. Absolutely. I think, you know, that's what I hope many, many teachers do. A lot of the teachers I've spoken to who are in the classroom have said that they will utilize the outdoors a lot more, like as much as awesome. they can, which is great. Mm. Um, you know, in some ways, this could be really interesting. I know right now there's a lot of chaos, um, but I think that there could be some really fundamental changes that happen for the good yes. because of it. And for, and that would be maybe getting outdoors. The parts that I struggle with, um, I appreciate, I don't want to get political here. So I appreciate why they're in place in terms of, you know, you know, social distancing is a prevention um, where I get really concerned is how we do those things. Um, because we still have to remember, we're talking about, children that are developing and a major part of how it is that they are well and they learn about their world and you know is through connection I mean when I did Mm -hmm. my doctoral research that was one thing that I really noticed a lot was the connections that students had and these were grade seven and eight students that I was observing through doing an ethnography and there was so much touch and now it was interesting per gender, so that's a whole other discussion, but, um, you know, but they, 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 there was this desire to always be together in some way. Do you see me? Do you hear me? Do I matter? If, if I'm sitting close and you're tickling my back or rubbing my hair, or even if you're hitting me with a stick because we're play fighting, 
I'm somehow, you know, have a place of belonging. There is some way in which we are connected. And I, I, I feel like it, it, it builds something within me. It's developing me sort of from that more, you know, emotional wellness stance. So, you know, that's a really critical part um, of that. So, you know, we have to be careful with some of the protocols in place that, okay, we've got them there for certain measures, but let's not therefore have it detrimentally impact students in some other way. Like every, every, every choice has a consequence, yeah. right? So we're doing this for your physical safety, but what about your mental safety? Like what about your mental health and wellness? You know, so yeah, or even like wearing masks. I mean, if I am a kindergarten student and it's my first time in school and my teacher has a mask on and a shield and all I see is their eyes, how do I, how do I feel safe? How do I connect? So, you know, there's the rational part that goes, you know, well, we're doing this for your physical safety. Um, but yet that child could be completely traumatized. Like it's really tricky, right? It's, it's definitely not it's extremely way. tricky. Yeah. Right? It's a very, very, very difficult thing. Just thinking of it from like a planning standpoint, like as an educator, it's a, a terrible situation. I, I did like any time that you're just having like kids and desks yeah. as like the, as the paradigm itself yeah. with rows, like that's awful. One of the things that I've found, like, I'm very curious about this whole learning pod kind of like adaptation. And if I was a parent with resources, of course, you're going to try to take care of your kid. And like, I, I understand why people might have distrust in Doug Ford's plan or any like leader's plan for the school system. They don't know. Mm-hmm. It's an experiment, right? We, we have no idea what, what it's going to look like. So I, I would never fault somebody for trying to help meet the needs of their child. Although there are systemic implications when all like the rich kids pull their kids out in the US in particular when funding is tied to postal codes yeah. inequitably, that matters. Yeah. But like, it, it's hard to blame parents for loving their children. But what I think is really interesting in a perverse way is what they have replicated in terms of classrooms is just like they, they've created like this 19th century horrible like rose like classroom again like why like you have this wonderful opportunity like re-envision education but there's something about institutions and how they structure our expectations for what is normal and abnormal in given context it's a concept called path dependency mm. in institutional sociology and basically uh, like it's the qwerty keyboard right so like when they created the keyboard they, they have this like particular format where it says qwerty in one place and then we've kept this as the paradigm even though science has shown it's not the best way to set up a keyboard but because we have it like that to change it is like we'd have to do too many changes we don't like changes so let's just keep it right. that's what institutions do right. they, they they maintain their forms through the hegemony of expectations mm. it, it, it they structure in our minds what a right and wrong school is and so it, it makes sense that parents are replicating what they went through which was kind of awful and so that's interesting but it's also an opportunity to do things completely differently and if i were i'm honestly i would be very much struggling right now if i were a teacher in a like a a, a traditional school system because from a teaching standpoint this is a very bad idea mm-hmm. like having just like the kids just sitting in these things in these rows are not allowed to, to get into contact that is a bad idea mm-hmm. pedagogically and so but the trade off is like okay we need them at school okay Right. And I get it because parents are exhausted. I, I have friends who are parents. They definitely need their kids to go. Right. But we don't have to right. respond educationally through the 
the paradigm that we've always been operating through. And I think this is an opportunity to rethink things. I think we're going to be forced to either way, but why not do, do a little bit in advance? If you're an elementary school teacher, you've got the adaptability to, to change in a way that uh, secondary teachers don't. And I would really encourage any elementary teachers to talk to you Right. about how they might like use the body more but uh even more important i think are the secondary teachers and they don't have a lot of options right because they're being told you can't do this so there are trade-offs and yeah. we need to be aware of these we need to analyze these they should be researched mm. i'm sure there are people do i know they are at harvard doing stuff like that and and then we need to be able to adapt very very rapidly based on the information we're getting the feedback information we're getting uh from students um and then make decisions in their interests. But then you have like the school system saying you have to do it exactly like this. So this is a very challenging time for I, teachers. Yeah, I had a really interesting talk actually with a, um, a former student of mine. So she was in my dance drama course last year. She's a brand new teacher. She's been hired for an LTO. So she'll be doing a- um, That's like a long-term long occasional, occasional teaching yeah. thing, yeah. And she's responsible for dance and drama this year with kindergarten and a grade one, two split class. And awesome. so it was great. I'm really excited. I'm finding that a lot of those um, positions, those dance, drama, or arts positions are not wanted by current, you know, seasoned teachers. Uh, they so often the new teachers coming out of teacher's college get them. Um, anyway, so she was given this role and she contacted me and said, I'm really struggling with how to get started because so much of dance and drama is um, interactive and requires movement. And how do you do that when they're right. little and they have to be apart? <laughs> so we had a really interesting talk. And the one thing that I said to her that I would say to anybody, and I'm probably going to write a post about, about that this coming week, is that, you know, we have to be... One, we have to be very careful to the degree that we are policing children around staying apart because little children. So one, if you just think about spatial awareness, many of us have varying degrees of our own spatial awareness. So some of us are not very good with direction, right? So even if you're a full grown up and you've lived your whole life where you've had to get places, you can still feel very directionless. Or you could be somebody that constantly knocks into things. I know people that, you know, they're constantly banging an elbow or tripping over something on the floor. So to expect that, a, you know, and kindergarten, for example, children are sometimes three years old when they start, right? Because their birthday. So in Canada, they don't have to, um, they have to have turned four by December 31st. So they could okay. be three and a half when they start kindergarten, they're very, very, very young, but three, yeah. four, five, six, they are still trying to figure out what is my space compared to what is your space. So hmm. to tell them you need to stay two meters apart, six feet, they're like, I'm sorry, what? Right? So it's a very complicated thing. And so for a teacher to be constantly policing, you're too close, stay apart, that in itself is going to be incredibly challenging and traumatizing. So I said yeah. to her one, I said, I would be very, very careful to the degree that you talk about social distancing. What I would mm. do instead is talk about something that is a really important life skill that we all need to learn, which is personal space. 
And I would start with that. And I said, it could be as simple as I want you to find a place in the room where you can stand by yourself and put your arms out to the side. And you're going to just turn your arms this way and that way. And if you cannot touch anyone else, then you are in your own personal space. Because the length of my arms, where my fingertip ends to where the next person's fingertips end, that is a perfect amount of space for those little ones to keep them apart. Then you can talk about, you know, how does it feel to be in the personal space? We're going to just keep our feet glued to the floor and we're going to reach up high. And you're going to reach out wide. We're going to reach down low. We're going to wave or we're going to shake or do all these things in our personal space. So that's the first thing. You can use hula hoops and they can all have a hula hoop and put it on the floor. So this is your spot to move. But we're not talking about social distancing. We are just yes. talking about spatial awareness. You can pick up the hoop and get them to move around the room. So we're going to move around the room, staying in our personal space. And you have your hoop to help you, right? That's your marker. That's your guide. The more you practice that, the more they start to understand where they need to be. And then we can talk about where, you know, when is it important to respect other people's personal space, right? It becomes into this whole thing around consent. And I mean, there's so many things that personal space teaches us. So we can do that in a way that helps them understand distance and proximity without traumatizing them, but still get them to move and be physical. That's how I would do it with young children. Awesome. Right? And then older children who get a better sense of that. But again, you know, as human beings, we are always, we always move in and out from each other. We do that naturally. And so we have to be, we cannot stop getting kids up and moving because we're afraid of that, you know, yeah. because we have to kind of look more realistically, like you're telling me yeah. that because they came this close together for a second that suddenly like a little COVID virus is going to like swing and like land on them and it's all over. I mean, that's yeah. just crazy thinking, right? They're in school, they're together, like, you know. They're in these <laughs> extremely not well ventilated rooms. Like a lot of the schools have very poor ventilation. Yeah. And I remember, I remember being in high school and like opening the windows in winter and like everyone get pissed off, obviously, because snow is coming into the room, but I needed some fresh air. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, and this was like the newest high school in the whole city. And I've been in lots of older ones through summer school and whatnot. And um, look, if you're putting all the kids in these rooms, mm -hmm. the social distancing thing doesn't anymore matter because they're in an enclosed space where they're all breathing out for over an hour. Same, same. You're just pretending that, I mean, it might have some minor difference, like to stay six feet away with the mask on, but probably not. It's the, the accumulation itself is very important. Yeah. And I would encourage people to have the kids stand up and move nonetheless. Yeah. There's lots of creative, fun ways to do that. Yeah. Challenge the kids to yeah. come up with creative, fun ways to yeah. do that. But instead of making it this fear, like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> we're all going to die from the disease, but I have to do well in math so I can become an accountant because, or my dad won't love me. Figuring out who we are yeah. as humans and who what your actual needs are and then having fun with it yeah. uh, because kids are brilliant. Yeah, they absolutely. And they can, you know, it's, and they're very adaptable, but we need to not put the fear into them and give them opportunities to just be in school and to mm. still have fun. And again, she said, How, what if I want to do groups? You know, like drama is so, you know, collaborative and group oriented. I said, put them in groups. But I said, you can also say to them, as we've been learning about our personal space, we're going to move into groups of three or groups of four and just make sure you maintain your personal space. So again, it's the language we use. There's no fear in, 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 in making those language choices. 
um, right? So we still have that, that choice. And I said, depending on what you do, you might do certain things inside and then say, today, I want to do this other thing with them, but I really want them to explore space. So we're going to go outside. And they don't have to know what you're thinking. They don't have to know that you're trying to figure out protocols and all this. You're just, you're just teaching to them and giving them a wonderful program. Keep yeah, you're creating that, a really interesting emotional experience for them. Yeah, so keep all that other stuff outside. But I said, don't modify it to the point where they're like, this totally sucks. Like I have a friend um, who, you know, was saying that in her school, so like singing is not allowed. But what they've decided is... Oh, right, because of COVID, sorry. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. of COVID. <laughs> I thought that was just a, a rule. There are schools that have rules like that. No, no, no. Just because it's like, oh, singing's wrong. It's a waste of time. Okay, yeah. it's a COVID rule. Because okay. of COVID. So instead of singing their school song, um, the school is going to learn it in sign language so that they can still put the song That's awesome. on the overhead. But, but now they're using sign language. So they're still collectively singing. They're just using a different language. And I love that. That's brilliant. Where is that? Where, where are they doing that? That's uh, a really good idea. The school is in York Region. Um, okay. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the school, but anyway. Beautiful creative adaptation. Yeah, so it's Wonderful. that's what it's about too. It's about being really creative and moving through the fear of chaos. So this is the other thing that people often worry about. I am going to lose uh, the class, like it's going to get chaotic. Well, it's, it's all about classroom management. That's a really big thing is that you you know, students can do anything if they know what the expectations are. So when I say, you know, when I talk to my students, my teacher candidates, I say, you just need to be really, really clear with what it is that you're asking the students to do. So you can start by creating guidelines, you know, so have a signal. So when they hear a signal, I love to use a drum. So it could be a drum or a chime or a triangle. And I always do the drum where I tap it like that. So ready, stop so that they know when they hear that, it's their automatic, oh, my teacher needs my attention, I need to stop mm -hmm. where I am, and then I listen. You know, again, talking about we respect each other's personal space, we, whatever it is, and that you, you make sure that the students are part of the process of creating those guidelines, that they say, yes, that makes sense, and I help think of it, and I kind of own it, and now I'm going to do it, and then you review it, and you bring them back, so you don't have to worry about movement getting out of control if you're really clear with what it is that you expect, and that when you do exercises, your instructions are also really clear, you know, and also, again, you're making sure that can all of my students do this? Am I really making sure the environment is safe? Am I making sure that, um, you know, the way in which we're doing it allows for all bodies to actually be able to do these particular movements and so forth? So there's lots of things that we can also do. It doesn't take a lot of, of work. Um, and, you know, if you're not 100% sure with certain students, you know, you can also ask them. The other thing we forget is students know their bodies. They live in them. They navigate the world in those bodies every single day. So you can find out from them too, you know, in terms of what it is. So you talked about meeting their needs. Again, there's lots of ways in which we can, we can do that or we can ask their parents, we really want to do this activity. We're going to go outside what do you think is the easiest way I can, you know, that this might work for your child, you know? And again, it shouldn't be about making sure that the child fits in. It's just that whatever you're planning includes everyone. Yeah. And, and, and I would add on to that. Like if, when, if, and when we include 
kids in the co-construction of whatever it is that we're doing, we're co-creating community. And that is the key. But that's part of it. But even more important is like the one-on-one personal relationships Mm -hmm. between the the teacher and the learners. And like actually like them knowing the teacher and the teacher really, really knowing the learners as humans in professional ways, like with with like appropriate boundaries and whatnot, but like actually knowing them and and, and who they are and not making assumptions. Like, and we can only do that by talking to them as individuals. Absolutely. And, well, and you can do it in lots of different ways, but doing it as an individual is an important part of it. And I, like very few teachers ever get to know their kids yeah. in a real way. It, because it's very, 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 very difficult yeah. to do that. Um, elementary teachers are a million times better at this than we secondary probably teachers they on spend average. more time with groups of students throughout the grade, yeah, which does make exactly. it easier for sure, yeah. It makes a difference if you have 30 students compared to 130 students. Right. You can't she- know rotating. 130 people. Yeah, yeah. Most- it's not possible. Yeah. It's a structural thing. Yeah. Um, so I would also encourage your uh, teacher candidate person to really just get to know the kids and really involve them. We're doing this together. Yeah. And because when they have ownership, then yeah. like their self-determination is embedded in the process and then it's meaningful and it's, it's directed in ways that are actually mm-hmm. helping them grow. Yeah. as a person and as a community mm-hmm. and that's the key yeah and and really building community where you know trust and respect is really integral to everything that they're doing so the students feel comfortable um we talk a lot about participation as well you know not all children feel compelled to move um for various reasons uh you know they may be really anxious they may be shy um you know they could be um, embarrassed, like there could be all, all kinds of things. And so, you know, again, it's also really important to know that children participate in different ways and it's never good to force anyone to do anything. Mm. We can have students participate through observing what's happening rather than doing. Um, and then over time, the chances are that they will join. Um, but we need to give them the opportunity to let us know when they're ready. So that's a really important thing too. When they're ready. When they're ready. Yeah. And then giving them agency, opportunity for agency. Yeah. But yeah, the, the determination of readiness is it has to be an individuated thing. Yeah. And uh, very few teachers, I think, or, or maybe I'm overgeneralizing from my own history as a right. teacher, but I, th- I would say it's fair for me to say in my own history as a teacher, a very successful teacher, I have not even come close to attending to that enough right. in, in prior teacher lives. And I, I would never want to make that mistake again. Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to say too, that is really important in when you get to know your students and you're building community and you're doing all these things is that we need to really look at who that child is in terms of, um, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, culturally responsive pedagogy. So, you know, if we're choosing music, is this music really representative of the students in my class? So Hmm. we can even ask our students, what kind of music do you love listening to, you know, um, and bring that in. If we're doing different kinds of movement and and doing, you know, dance or again, whatever the arts is, I mean, we can pull from, you know, different sources. Um, We can also bring in guests, you know, that really support the diversity of our classes. That's really important too. So, you know, part of getting to know our students is having them see themselves in what it is that we are doing. And 
you know, within many cultures, you know, dance is very much a part of celebration. It's very much a way in which they, um, you know, um, it's, it could be celebration, it could be, um, you know, ritual, ceremony, um, you know, it, it could be, you know, part of uh, death. I mean, you know, like there's different ways in which, you know, cultures use movement um, that's really integral and important to sort of the foundation of who many of our students are. So it's in getting to know them, then we get to understand that too. Um, so it makes what we're doing much richer for everybody mm. in our class. Really much more beautiful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that. Yeah. Tracy, I have a feeling that uh, at least a few people I know after listening to this are gonna wanna reach out to you. Mm. How, what's the best way to do that? So we have a really phenomenal website and it's called embodiedlearnings.com. And so they can go on there um, and I'll just tell you sort of things they can find on there. Um, uh, so you can sign up for a newsletter. We have weekly newsletter and every week you get free resources. We also have um, an amazing Spotify playlist. So we've got all kinds of things on our website in terms of how you can bring in really neat different kinds of music into your class that really support getting students moving. We've got a cool. shop with all kinds of resources. Um, so we've got a blog, we've got lots of great content there. So that's one way they can reach us. Uh, we're also on social media. So you can find us on Instagram, on um, Twitter, on Facebook and on Pinterest as well. So um, you're everywhere. You're all everywhere. over the internet. <laughs> Question though, I'm curious, like, um, I understand you're like a super busy person. You're you're doing a million things already, but have you considered also like coaching teachers in, in like a like outside of like your teacher kind of like education role, but at more as like a like an in service ongoing thing because it's one of the like the strongest mm. ways that we can actually add value mm. uh, to the system by supporting teachers. Yeah. And you'd be amazing at that. So is that something you're doing or considering doing? So um, one thing that we've put on our website is that we are building a mentorship type program. And so that's in the works right now um, in a way in which, well, one, so, you know, we could offer one-on-one um, -on -one training or group training. So, so that for teachers that really want to know how to do this um, and do it well, you know, we can, we can provide services that really do support their particular needs for their age group, their classroom, you know, sort of where they're starting from, their starting point. So it would certainly be very um, adaptive and um, sort of needs specific to the individual. So and that could be super helpful. Like, because I, I do think back to like my first year of teaching. It was it was seventy hours a week. Yeah. It was fourteen hour days. Um, not really a day off mm. for like until Christmas and um, just putting in a teaching eight classes, six things I've, I don't even know how to teach yeah. kind of thing. It's just an absurd situation, like, ridiculous situation. Like it, it absolutely set up for failure. Yeah. I didn't fail. <laughs> I learned a lot. I worked my, I worked like crazy, practiced zero self-care and I got through it and I got nominated for awards. Da, da, da. Um, but what, also really helped at the time was having instructional coaches because I was I, I did my uh, initial teaching in Alberta, which is actually an excellent pro province mm. when it comes to teacher professional development. Mm, yeah, they're they're fantastic at that. They really have very intelligent ways of doing it. And it, it did, it, it helped to have a coach. Yeah. They weren't nearly as helpful as they could have been. I, if I'd had a really excellent coach, it would have been a lot better. I had not the best coach in the world, but it made me realize that 
like looking back on it, that it's one way that like we could really have a, a substantial, powerful, positive influence mm. in, on education because like new teachers need so much help. Yes. And they're so stressed out and centering the body mm-hmm. is the last thing on their minds yeah. because they're stuck in their heads. Yes. And just doing all their work. For sure. And I actually should mention, there's a couple of things. There are a few things that we're also doing. So um, one thing that we're building is a teacher wellness toolbox series. Cool. And so those are resources where they're just simple strategies so that you can really get more into your body. So the last one we did was called pause and shift. So it was like how, you know, and thinking about teachers just going back into the school system and feeling anxious and and frustrated and how you can really pause in those moments and kind of shift. So even though there could be chaos around you, you can still feel grounded and at peace within yourself. Um, So there's lovely strategies. So we're doing that. We also had another one, which was a a wellness tool, um, self-care toolbox. So it was a bunch of different tools on how to remember You cannot help your students if you are not taking care of yourself. So we're going to keep Mm. up with that. We also have um, a workshop series coming up. And um, that is with my uh, friend, uh, dear friend of mine, Erica McNeil, who um, I mentioned at her school, they were doing the sign language. So we're doing something on movement integration where every week we're going to be attending to something very specific around what you need to think about to be able to do this work. So it's a four-part series. And then I'm working with another woman named Liz Diaz, and we are developing something specifically for teachers on actually getting into their own bodies using movement so that they can work through whatever it is that where they feel their disconnects are. Um, So it will not only be, we hope, be really um, healing and empowering for their, their own selves, but also there'll be things they can directly take into the classroom to do with their students. So they'll get resources, but also there'll be a lot of self-reflection. So it's kind of like, um, you know, as I am learning how to do this for my students, I'm also having what we hope to be an incredibly educational and cathartic experience. So those are things that we're building right now too. Beautiful. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I mean, I came up with more ideas, but it doesn't sound like you need more work, but like, (laughs) but here's the thing. I mean, there's also, there's other, there's other like groups that have needs, right? So like, there's like the, 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 the homeschooling people who are trying to like teach their kids at home. They also could use support. The kids who are doing online learning by themselves need the most help because they have not been set up for success almost certainly when it comes to like wellness practices and yet all the stresses are still there they're actually even more compounded because they're online and the supports are gone the connection's gone and that is not a good recipe for mental well-being for the flourishing of humanity and it does concern me and like i I really hope that more and more people take self-care really seriously I just created a really neat resource. It's coming out this week and it is a self-care check-in. So it's sort of for, it's meant for students, adults can also do it. And it basically starts where in the morning you say, how am I feeling today? What, um, so what am I feeling today? What, how, what is the color of that feeling? Where do I feel it most in my body and how would I describe it in an adjective? so that you can actually not only identify the feeling, but really see it and feel it and identify where you where it is. And then um, the question is, 
do I, is this something I need to, I would like to speak with, with a caring adult so that they can identify, do I, is it, am I doing okay? Or actually, is this something that would be really helpful to talk to somebody about? And then it goes into what do I hope to accomplish for the day personally and from a work perspective. So imagine you're using this in the classroom. And at the end of the day, it goes back to at the end of the day, now I am feeling um, what my favorite part of the day was, what I wished for, and then what I'm most grateful for. So it's again, brings it back to sort of the self and identifying, you know, where I am, how I'm feeling, am I getting my needs met, you know? Um, so that's a, a big piece of this. You're integrating both like emotional self-awareness practices and some very core findings from positive psychology, like practicing gratitude. Oh yeah, yeah. And putting that together in, in like, that's very clever. Cool. We'll be doing a lot more of that too. And we've got some neat resources on getting out in nature and, um, oh, I've got some phenomenal ones on actually emotions. And cool. it's all like, you know, we've got one on um, communication in the body. We've got one on actually um, feeling our emotions and are doing, there's a whole bunch of exercises that you can do with, with children where they identify and we have use art and get embodied and, you know, explore how we feel and, you know, working groups to share our emotions. Anyway, there's, so we do a lot of that too. Amazing. So if uh, anyone listening to this is a parent or a teacher or knows children and cares about them, check out embodiedlearnings.com. Check out Tracy L. Sheepstra. I really want to thank you, Tracy, for coming on. You're an amazing human being. I'm super excited to see where this is going to go. <laughs> thank you so much, Gareth. It was, it was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Super fun. Connect. It's been so yeah, Way too long. Way too long. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll come out to Guelph sometime. I've never been there and I'll get a coffee. Oh, it's awesome. You'll love Is it. it. <laughs> cool. All right. Sweet. Thank you so much. All right. Well, lots of love. Have a wonderful day there. And uh, I'm going to say goodbye. Okay. All right. All right. See ya. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So that was episode number 12 of the World Teacher Podcast. Thanks so much, Tracy. I'm Gareth Manning. Please share the podcast with people who might be interested. And peace and love to you all. Thanks for listening.